Good afternoon and welcome to local and state news for Midday Magazine on this Wednesday, the 19th day of October. I'm Julie Hersey with these stories. Last month, Aaron Hankins became Petersburg's new fire and EMS director. Before that, Hankins was a volunteer in the fire department for almost six years. He gave KFSK reporter Rachel Cassandra a tour of the fire station, and they talked about his new job. Most of this up here is storage, but uh, um, we also house like the server equipment and stuff like that. The mechanical room, tactical vests in case we had to respond to some sort of active threat stuff with the PD. So we have uh, things like tourniquets and trauma shears, lights. Okay, so now we're headed to the apparatus bay. The apparatus bay is a giant garage with two ambulances, two fire trucks, and a truck for search and rescue. On the back side, there's a balcony with workout equipment for the team. Um, here we have our first, our first two frontline uh, fire engines. So engine eight is our structure fire ambulance. Engine four is primarily for vehicle response. So this one is for um, structure. So you're going to have a lot more uh, axes, um, saws for cutting roofs, a lot more uh, nozzle equipment. Of course, both engines have ladders, things like that. As you go through them, you'll see these red and green lines. And essentially, these are pre-attached to the engine. Pull the hose off, and you can just pre-charge it. It's 200 feet on each line. Pre-charging means there's enough water in the truck to get it started before you connect Correct. And so um, 750 gallons each engine and then uh, of its own water before it starts drawing off of the the hydrant system. So we don't have to hook up the other end of the hose. Just grab the nozzle end and start running towards Mm -hmm. the fire. Compartment, you know, we have things like drills, sawzall, extra searchlights, cones for cordoning stuff off. I think that's great for the tour. Can we talk a little bit about like what's coming up for your position? Sure. The big one is we have the threat and hazard identification and risk assessment or the the Thera. That is a uh, a state involved program where yearly the emergency manager reports on you know identifiable threats to the community. So you'll be kind of going over all of the things that Petersburg might see and how we would respond to that? Yes. And so that includes natural disasters, man-made issues. Of course, we just went through COVID, so I'm sure they have a new category in there for pandemic response. And that's coordinated a lot with the state. And then, uh, as well as, you know, I take care of a lot of the budgeting. The budgeting process will probably start here sometime, you know, December, January. And um, what are you excited about, about your new job? Everything. It's all a great big learning process. I'm excited to get to continue to help the community in a new capacity. Can you tell me about who this is? Oh, Buster. Buster looks a little worse for wear. He's grubby and slumped beneath a metal rolling rack. So, or actually, it's Rescue Randy is 
the, the brand name. So he is a 180-pound mannequin that we can drag around through different scenarios. You can see some of the wood we use for uh, making a prop, if we're simulating like going out of a window or a hallway or something like that. We can uh, throw him in there and use him to as a realistic dummy to pull out. Hankins has replaced former director Sandy Dixon, who retired in the summer. Hankins' work on the report about potential threats to Petersburg will likely be finished sometime this month. That report will be sent to the state of Alaska for further planning. In Petersburg, I'm Rachel Cassandra. You can see pictures of Buster and Hankins online at kfsk.org. And you can also contact the Petersburg Fire Department if you'd like a free tour of the station. They have a new website. It's joinpvfd.org, and they are always looking for new volunteers. Longtime Juno resident James Wyckoff regularly walks to Nugget Falls. He's noticed that the face of the Mendenhall Glacier seems to be retreating faster this year than any year he's seen before, which prompted him to ask just how far has the glacier retreated in the last 12 months. For KTOO's Curious Juno, Chen Chen has the answer. When James Wyckoff first saw the Mendenhall Glacier in 1974, he remembers Nugget Falls pouring on top of the glacier and then blasting out into the lake through a cave in the glacier's face. Now, the waterfall flows right into the lake and the glacier is way behind. Now look at that. You can just barely see the foot of the glacier sneaking out past those rocks there. Such a difference. Halfway up the trail to the falls, he describes how things might have looked here long ago. Could be the face of the glacier here, standing 150 foot tall at one point, dropping off all these boulders around here. He pointed to a, a boulder by the trail, which he identified as an erratic, a boulder carried down by glacial ice. And if it could talk, it would have a story to tell about what it was like coming down the valley on a glacier. <laughs> Getting ripped off the side of the mountain. Oh. Okay, so on to his burning question. How much has the glacier retreated in the last year? More than 800 feet. That's between August of last year and August of this year. A geophysicist with the Alaska Science Center used satellite imagery to figure it out. Mike Heckers is a glaciologist and outdoor guide who lives in Juneau. He says that for the last two decades, the glacier has pretty consistently retreated about 160 feet per year. But some years obviously have more melt than others, like this year. The glacier advances in the winter, but climate change brings hotter and longer summers, and that means overall retreat. Heckers thinks that pretty soon the glacier will be up and out of the lake completely, and at that point, the glacier's face won't be regularly calving into the lake. This means that the big icebergs in Mendenhall Lake will become a thing of the past. Wyckoff says that those icebergs have always felt special to him. That's something you expect to see around Antarctica. You don't expect to see icebergs in the lake at the end of summer. At this rate of retreat, the glacier itself won't be visible from the visitor center at all in about 30 years. And Wyckoff says that someday people in Juneau will have to reminisce about the Mendenhall Glacier, when all we have left about what it used to be like is our stories. In Juno, I'm Chen Chen.
Students at a public charter elementary school in Ketchikan celebrated Indigenous Peoples Day with their first all-school assembly in more than two years. As Eric Stone reports, the Tonga School of Arts and Sciences Assembly is part of the school district's efforts to promote what's known as place-based learning. Good day, Thunderbirds. Clint Schultz, a third and fourth grade teacher whose hyena name is White Wolf, welcomes students and leads them in a review of some words and phrases in the endangered Haida language, Hadkil. So, the way it will go will be, I say, you say. That sound good? Yeah. All right. So, ready? Hawa. Can anyone tell me by a raise of hand, what does Hawa mean? It means thank you. Can we give him a quick little applause? Ready for this one? House and Dunks Kingston. What does House and Dunks Kingston mean? Excellent. So it means I will see you again. So can we give her a round? After some practice, it's time to celebrate Southeast Alaska Native culture in another way with a song. All right. So this is our welcome song. Now, we talk about every Monday and Friday when we do our welcome song, we tell who this song is gifted by. Well, not everyone may know who Teresa Burnell is, but luckily for us, guess what? Miss Teresa is here. Teresa, would you come up? Do you mind? Cornell is the district's cultural coordinator. She was honored as the Alaska Heritage Institute's Educator of Distinction earlier this year. Yeah, I composed it. We were having a hard time. There were so many educators that were talking to me about uh, having like this feeling of fear or being uncomfortable about using language or singing songs and thinking they might be doing things in the wrong way. And I thought this would alleviate all of those fears. Then it's time for the highlight of the afternoon, the dances. Schultz leads the children through three main moves, starting with the raven dance. And we're going to get really low. Now, what a raven does is a raven hops around like this. Okay? And as it does, it looks. So we hop around. Okay? Next one you can do is the paddle dance. And where the hands are going to come up like this. And this is us saying like we have our paddle, our war paddle, our canoe paddle, and it comes in the air just like this. Okay? The last one is the wolf dance. And this is kind of a strong dance. We're going to stay really low, and our hands are going to come out in front of us like this. So one hand comes in front, the other comes below, behind. Staying as low to the ground as possible, the students hop around the gym as Tori Schultz leads in drumming and singing. Then it's time for the women's dance. Students put their hands on their hips and glide around the room to what Schultz calls the women's competition song. (laughs) 
Quitschult says the school's curriculum is designed to tie students' lessons to their community. It's what's called place-based learning. We want the kids that are Alaska Native, who are Haidek, Thinkin, and Shemshian, to be proud of, uh, of their heritage, and then we want the other students to be able to share in that. Um, and cultural importance at the school level of all cultures is, is extremely important for all the kids. Ann Varnell, who taught first and second grade at the Tongas School before becoming the district's cultural coordinator, says it seems to be working. Well, I think in particular with Tonga School, if you just show up in the morning, you'll see what it looks and feels like. I think what's most important is that they are all coming together in a different kind of sense of community that you don't see in other schools. It's a strategy the district hopes will keep students connected, both to their school and to their community. Reporting in Ketchikan, I'm Eric Stone. This year's Alaska general election absentee ballot weighs just over one ounce. If it was an ordinary letter, it would need two stamps. But the Alaska Beacon reports that officials at the Alaska Division of Elections and the U.S. Postal Service say, if you forget, your ballot will still be carried and counted with just one stamp. The first absentee ballots for the November 8th general election have already been sent, and the design of the return envelope includes a box for only one stamp. But fine print in the absentee ballot instructions says attach 84 cents worth of postage, and the current price for one first-class stamp is 60 cents. That dissonance led to concerned posts on social media, some containing erroneous information. According to a state election official, there is no requirement that a ballot have a certain amount of postage to be counted, ballots dropped off at a polling place, or one of the regional elections offices do not need to have postage, for example. The deadline to request an absentee ballot by mail is October 29th. The ballot must be delivered to an early or election day polling site, put into a drop box at a regional elections office, or be postmarked by November 8th. Ballots railed, that mailed from rural Alaska may take several days to reach Anchorage, where most mail is postmarked. Ballots may also be hand postmarked by a clerk in a postal office. That wraps up the news portion of Midday Magazine. Stay tuned. We'll have a look at the marine and local weather forecast.